0: Hello, and welcome to the second bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. This episode is the second in a two-part special on large-area biological weapon simulant trials carried out in the UK during the Cold War. We are once again very lucky to be joined by Mike Kenner, who, as you will likely remember, is an open government campaigner and Cold War researcher, who you can find on Twitter at Wellbright, that's W-E-L-L, B-R-I-G-H-D. In the first episode, we focused on work carried out by scientists from Porton down up until the mid-1960s, which involved the spread of zinc cadmium sulphide over vast swathes of the UK. In that episode, we focused primarily on what those early trials involved, but touched a little bit on the broader political fallout which would eventually emerge. In this episode, we continue to trace the history of these larger area trials during the 1960s and 1970s, focusing on what has become known as the Lion Bay Trials, which involved the use of bacteria, including E. coli, in open-air trials in the populated areas. In this show, we also examined what happened when details of these secret trials came to broader public attention in the 1990s. In
1: 1966, biological trials were carried out on the south coast of England. They were designed to measure the properties of bacterial particles in an aerosol at various distances downwind of a line release. The basic aims were to assess the risk to this country of biological warfare and to devise a satisfactory method of detecting biological agents in the atmosphere. Answers were sought to the following questions. What is the concentration of particles? What is the dose of bacteria? Do the bacteria survive? Is survival dependent upon particle size? Can the bacteria be detected?
0: So Mike, uh, why don't you give us a brief recap of what we talked about in our first bonus episode?
2: Well basically what we found out in the first episode is that Port and Down were very interested in discovering whether they could disseminate a biological warfare cloud. Uh, Cloud's the wrong word, really, a massive aerosol of biological warfare agent over a very, very large area. CDE spent most of the latter part of the 1950s investigating something that they called the large area coverage concept, in which uh, a single plane or a ship could travel down the coast of the UK or along the Channel or up the Irish Sea, um, all the time spraying a biological warfare agent. They found out by using simulants, a biological warfare simulant, that is a non-pathogen, so-called non-pathogen, that they could contaminate an area of at least 10,000 square miles with one single sortie. Now, that used a biological warfare simulant, which was basically a chemical compound, cadmium. Uh, its actual title was zinc cadmium sulfide. Uh, portland Down liked to refer to it as FP, uh, fluorescent powder. Then they moved on to seeing whether they could attack a city successfully, or whether the heat from the city would either stop the cloud, from, uh, the biological warfare cloud, from coming down to ground level and therefore be inhaled, or whether it would encourage it. Uh, and they they decided to use the town of Norwich and the whole area of Norfolk that was sprayed by an aircraft. We know more were carried out in '63, but if uh, an experiment isn't considered successful. Porton never used to write up a report on it. They decided to come back in 1964 and continue these trials. And these trials were very extensive. They they involved the use of Home Office scientific advisors, a massive amount of, of Porton staff going from drivers to senior scientists, and of course, the City of Norwich Police. Well, in 1964, the trials were done, still proved to be inconclusive. But by that time, Horton had the idea is, well, we know that we can spray a particle. We know the trajectory. We know we can spray a particle many, many miles. We know that we can do it in a sufficient concentration that if it was a biological warfare agent, it would, uh, it would contaminate a very large area and a large number of people. But what they didn't know is whether a live bacteria could do the same. They could do this with a chemical compound, but with a, a live bacterial agent, be able to withstand long distance travel and would it still be in in enough concentration at the end to cause disease in people and with that in mind they realized we've got to go ahead now and we have got to release a massive quantity of live bacteria and it's unfortunately for the public this meant using public spaces what they decided to do initially was to test the theory out by spraying from the Porton Range, which is near Stonehenge. It's just outside of Amesbury, near Salisbury. They set up a static point there where they'd be spraying a small cloud of biological simulant. This was a mixture of killed Klebsiella erogenes and live Bacillus glibigii, a.k.a. BG, they spray it. It would come outside the, uh, the Porton range, and the Porton range is large. It's 7,000 acres, but it would, it would be carried by the wind. And teams of, of mob, mobile sampling teams would try and sample the air up to about 15 miles away. Now, they do this mainly by releasing something called zero-lift balloons. And the zero-lift balloon is like a meteorological balloon, a small one, that's been balanced. It's got a radar reflector attached to it and pieces of plasticine. Placed onto the radar. And I, um, I understand that didn't they put lights on them as well? Well this did is night-time? the point. They put a one watt cycle lamp. These are cycle lamps, <laughs> so it probably said Raleigh on them. And they'd attach them somehow. They did just this for zero lift and they released them at the start of the cloud when they started spraying. And continuously sort of every two or three minutes they've released these things as they continue spraying and, and pull people out in the sampling trucks would be there with binoculars trying to spot a one watt cycle bulb coming towards them and they try and get in the way of the cloud and and that was it basically they, they'd then take some samples hopefully they got in the way of the cloud but it was more of a practice for what was to come.
1: Lime Bay and the surrounding countryside were chosen for the trials because the area is close to Portland Naval Base and onshore winds can be obtained with any wind direction from 100 degrees through south to 300 degrees. A suitable control site was found at Fleet, which is only six miles from the naval base and 60 miles
2: from Porton. The Line Bay trials is a collective term for a series of biological warfare trials that were conducted in the South Dorset area but affected most of the southern counties. It's it's a collective term insofar as that they were done for many different reasons. So the first two seasons that were done from 1963 to 64 and 64 to 65, and the season normally operated between October and April, the first two years they they were basically done to try and work up a a system to prove that biological warfare was feasible, B to try and investigate the development of identification and warning devices so that the armed forces could be equipped with something which would warn them of an impending biological warfare attack. Then they move on to other trials. Now, sometimes they developed a technique called the microthread trials, which is using spiders' webs. Um, Then they moved on and they decided that they found something called the open air effect. And that worried them because they were getting test results that weren't comparable uh, with the test sphere, with the microthreads, and with releasing it uh, through massive aerosols. So they tried to invent something, well, develop something that could protect the individual bacteria. So they worked out a method of coating each particle with a substance called S3. That's meant to be harmless, apparently, but we're of, whether it is or not is open to conjecture. And that was sprayed exactly the same. Again, they they came down, they did a series of trials. I think it was about 10 of those. Then they decided towards the end of the 60s that they wanted to show off to the chiefs of staff what they could do. And they invited the great and the good from the armed forces down and they conducted a load more trials, basically, to demonstrate what they could do. Then by about 1970, 71, that they started collaborative work with, the United States Navy and Air Force, and they were trying to work out a rapid identification or a rapid warning system. Portner developed their version, um, and they were relying on um, on the states to bring over their version so they could do a comparison trials, So they did, I think it was 12 trials were done in November of 1971, yet again releasing live bacteria. The Yanks, I mean, the Dear American Partners, did not want to use Porton's main biological warfare simulant, E. coli, MRE-162. They didn't, I don't know why, but they didn't want to. They prefer to use something called inactivated serratia marcescens*, which is an opportunistic pathogen, but what they'd done is that, that it was inactivated, whatever that means. And they released that alongside live bacillus globigii*. So they did that series of trials. And then in 1975, The Americans wanted to test their XM19 warning device that they had, and by that time, Porton had developed a system that would identify, do a rapid identification of a a bacterial agent. So they combined the two together, and they did joint trials, and they were called the DICE trials, and they were conducted, 24 trials were conducted down here.
0: So to place this in context, so in the early 60s, you have... The UK still is developing and having lots of political back and forth over the development of a nerve agent deterrent, as well as other types of uh, weapon system. There's this relationship between the UK and the US and, of course, also collaboration with Canada. Mm. In this period, there's so many factors which seemingly shape policy in this space. And another thing that was coming online in this time was public resistance. In the early 50s, there was a general much more subservience towards government in terms of the public understanding and awareness of these issues were quite low. But towards the end of the 1950s and towards the early 1960s, you started to see civil society and protest groups starting to protest against Portland. So at the time these trials were being conducted, you were also seeing vocal public resistance against biological and chemical
2: weapons. Exactly. I mean, that's exemplified by the War Office Chief Scientist, um, Dr. Kaywood, and he wrote uh, a briefing memo to Profumo just before he retired. Because Profumo had had asked, he'd heard that some trials were being done, and he wanted to to know more. And Kaywood in there says, um, knowledge of these trials by unauthorized persons would be politically Embarrassing. Now, what he meant is if the voters find out, you're screwed. (laughs) Um, Basically, in the 1960s, we've gone through scandal after spy scandal after sex scandal. The government was in a terrible position and they were taking this huge risk. The government was very, very frail at the time. We had that was a week that was on every week that was just ripping into the government and ripping into deference. You had beyond the fringe that was doing the same thing. Satire was, was the in thing. So that, that gives you some context of, of when these trials were occurring. I've just been reading
0: about the chemical weapon branch of work in the 1960s, and in particular, the desire of the UK, uh, well, some aspects of the UK to develop a, a, a nerd agent deterrent. And what was fascinating is that on one hand, there was a need to have a deterrent. And the only works if you tell people you have a deterrent. exactly well, at this point in history the u k population are, aren't going to accept that yeah. there was also a discussion of whether or not they should rely on the u s to produce their nerve agent, and then the government were worried that the u s would request the u k to store their nerve agents as yeah. a as a deal and so this was a, a a real theme at this time of 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 not only a greater role of the public but this Fear of public backlash was, a, was yes. really was coming home to roost in that period. And, of course, I assume it was something that the West would have expected, particularly you know Soviet um, propagandists, to really take advantage of a, a slip-up in this respect. Well, well. This, is, so this was,
2: is what they did in Gordon Lonsdale's book. For people who don't know who Gordon Lonsdale is, he was meant to be the, um, the KGB illegal who was in charge of the Portland spy ring. When he was repatriated back to the Soviet Union, um, obviously he got together with Soviet propagandists and produced a book, his autobiography, which is, you know, like all good propaganda, it probably contains elements of truth. And in that, he tries to sow the seeds of doubt about Porton Down, and he claims that there are Nazi scientists in the 1960s working within Porton Down, former Nazi scientists. And he even hints at the fact that they were doing trials down here, which is quite curious because even Graydon Carter, the Porton Down historian, he mentions in his background history that the Soviet trawlers were well aware of the trials that were going on down here. All communications were done by the British Enclair, so there was no no code being used. So that's that's just is that just radio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, they they they're all operating commercial radio systems. Pi. Yet off of Portland, there was a, an enormous trawler <laughs> absolutely festooned with, uh, with direction-finding radio gear and, and listening equipment. So the Soviets were well aware. I mean, if you've got a ship sailing up and down, you can hear all these people on land saying, yes, it's here. <laughs> they know that something's being sprayed. So it was the public that they were, like you were saying, it was the public that they were trying to keep this from. It wasn't the Soviets. And, of course, what was
0: also interesting is that you, if you were local, you'd have known something. So I, I'd suggest people do watch the video with, we've talked about here that was put out by MRE. In that video, uh, you see the two laboratory vans driving, and it almost yeah. goes on a grand tour of the West Country. So we don't even use the B roads. They drive oh, no. through the major. So if you're local, you've seen two, and they're huge, you know, eight or what? nine foot black that vans. Was- giving an MRE on the back of them.
2: Um. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was a convoy then followed by numerous port and scientists, normally in a mini. Now, curiously, um, if I can just explain a little bit about the area. Moonfleet was, well, fleet. It's about two miles, three miles west of Weymouth. It overlooks Lyme Bay. There used to be an RAF gunnery range out in Lyme Bay. So they built a watchtower for that, so a lookout point. Uh, MRE decided to use that as their control point. So they could set up there, they could set up their radar, the two laboratories that you mentioned, the control vehicle, the, the Golden Arrow, and later on they introduced an incubation lab or the Night Ferry. So you've got all this radar set up. They used to put up a meteorological balloon that looked like a small-scale barrage balloon. I mean, they did everything that they could to say we are here. <laughs> now, there's an interesting story. In 1970, I became a, I worked for the um, British telecom what became British Telecom. I was an apprentice. There's this little road that leads to this, that leads to Moonfleet Manor. Um, is so, is a Georgian manor that's named after Mead Faulkner's book Moonfleet, which was set in the area. So it's a very mysterious area, and you go through a very wooded area an old derelict church to one side. It's a very spooky place. And we had to go and put a telephone in. And this, this little old lady, she was so cute. She said, can you tell me something about those petrol tankers that keep coming down? And <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she said, last October, I saw a petrol tanker followed by another one come down the road. She said, and it never came back. <laughs> and, and we thought, you know, poor woman, she's living on her own. It wasn't until years later I realised that she'd witnessed the Golden Arrow and the Knight Ferry being driven down for the trial season and it wasn't due back to come that, back down that road for another four months, five months.
0: And that is exactly, They looked like old they're down, they're that sort yes, of size, Yes,
2: exactly, yeah um, we we had another uh, example down there, there was a, a rumour that there was a coven meeting down there in, in the 1960s <laughs> and um, it's a very spooky area so it was just a place for a local rumour and Quite a few people came forward and said, oh, I was driving down there one night and there was a car behind me. It was normally a Mini. And there was a monk, a bloke wearing a, a hooded cowl, and he was driving it. And when I got to Moonfleet Manor, he just disappeared. Well, he turned off. He'd gone up to the control site. And what they actually saw was a portent scientist coming back from a field trial wearing his duffel coat with the hood up.
0: Is, now, is the Moonfleet Manor, is that the same as the Moonfleet building which you see I think in the video, uh, which yeah they, they retire for lunch, that's oh, all that, have...
2: that's the very senior then I mean you know the the creme de la creme was one of those that went there, so the, the top ones stayed at the moonfleet manor, lower ranks were spaced out at, at, across Weymouth, so the very low ranks were just in guest houses. I think in total, there was about fifty Port and staff were brought down here.
0: well, I hope it's still there because i I, as you know, uh, I have... oh, it's a
2: very select place now. The, the Moonfleet Hotel is is um, is, oh. is very well recognised. So if you, if you fancy going down there and asking if you could see the 1963 visitors book, I'd imagine that would be quite interesting.
0: I'm sure they'd love that. I, I as you know, I have some peculiar interests that I've acquired over the year, and one of which is my list of places to visit associated with usually remote facilities. This is one of the more local and accessible ones, so I might put that first on the list.
1: By now, it was time to retire to the nearby Moonfleet Hotel for a well-earned lunch.
0: If you look retrospectively, we can look back and see there were some shadows of this project that were, would have been observable. We certainly assume that the Russians would have known about how oh, yeah. lost this uh, work. Uh, absolutely. But it certainly wasn't a matter of public mm-hmm. record at the time. How did these trials come to public attention?
2: Portendown apparently placed a, the first trials document In the National Archives, someone placed it in there in 1995, but it wasn't spotted for two years until a journalist, uh, well, two journalists, but mainly Rob Evans. um, He was working for the Sunday Telegraph at the time, along with Andrew Gilligan, discovered the document and managed to get parliamentary questions asked about it. This article, the subsequent article, appeared 2nd of February 1997 in the Sunday Telegraph. And it revealed that um, 25 trials were done in total. Um, and that's all that, that, that people thought had happened, Danny, 25 releases of large-scale releases of, of live bacteria. Then the story moved on. Obviously, South Dorset, Went absolutely ballistic. The residents down here—they were a bit split between the residents who realised that something had been happening down here, realising, "Oh, it's okay to talk now." So they were saying, "Oh, yeah, I knew something was happening." Most people were appalled, as were all the local authorities. Uh, bless them—they, they, they really, really were concerned, and they wanted to know whether this still the most important question is, is it still occurring and, and what really happened down here and how many trials were done and was it dangerous and what was released? So there were a multitude of questions being asked. And this lasted, I think it was within um, about a week. I managed to track down Rob Evans. First of all, I contacted the MP that was involved, Ken Livingstone. He put me onto Rob Evans. Rob Evans very kindly sent me uh, a a Sort of like a shortened version of MRE, FTR number three. I got in touch with the leader of uh, Dorset County Council at the time and said, "Would you like a copy?" So it went up. Had a meeting with him. Chief executive was there. We handed that over. That gave him ammunition then to talk to other local authorities in the area, and they all decided that something has got to be done, and they started putting pressure on the on the government. This then. The few, and I mean, it really was, a, there was a lot of anger down here about it. This coincided with John Major having brought in uh, the forerunner to the Freedom of Information Act. And at the time, contrary to today, there was a feeling that we need openness. The Cold War is now over. You've got to start admitting what was done in the name of the Cold War. So there was this big roller roller coaster going on of do we release information? Don't we release information? Port and Down themselves were just absolutely horrified because they didn't know what to do. It was, uh, it was out of their remit. They they just they were never in the public eye, except for animal rights, uh, and that was it. so they agreed that they they'd have to do something. Um, there was demand for public inquiry and they thought, well, we, we might be able to short circuit this. And for the first time ever, Porton Down agreed to come outside the wire and come and give pep- public exhibitions. But fortunately for them, John Major went and called a general election. So because of the general election, they hid behind that and they said, oh, no, we'd we 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 we'd love to do it. <laughs> but no, we can't do it because with a general election, it might become a political issue. And, and we've got to steer clear of that. Well, Tony Blair became elected. We had the the new open government coming in. That was one of his major promises in the manifesto, open government. Um, And they put immense pressure themselves back onto Port and You've got to do something. And especially as the MP down here, and we're a traditional Tory shire down here, in the 1997 election, it swung to Labour. So obviously, this is tremendous impetus to show, look, Labour will do something. So they put pressure, and I kept nagging them as well. In the end, they decided that, OK, we're going to do three open days. They came down to Weymouth, they came to Dorchester, and they went to Bridport. It was sort of like a corporate roadshow, but the public response was phenomenal. I I've, I've witnessed in Dorchester, um, a doctor just came flying in, a, a local GP, went straight to the director of Porton Down and virtually pinned him against a wall, screaming into his face, what the hell did they think they were doing? Uh, Releasing live bacteria in breathable form over vulnerable individuals. It it was quite a surprise. But what happened then, really surprised Porton Down, is that a group of families came along from Lulworth who'd experienced some very strange birth experiences And Lulworth was one of the places that was heavily hit. But but they were magnificent. They were the Lulworth families. Now, I'm going to get a bit cynical now, but with television, um, well, any media, the first thing that any editor asks is, are there bodies? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the human interest. And if it wasn't for the Lulworth families coming along, and it could show that there were disabilities, it could show that there'd been far too many miscarriages for the size of the village, that something had happened there. That made it a newsworthy story and that gave tremendous impetus. And now the Lowrwith families were heroic. They gave interviews, they were uprooted at about six in the morning so they could all appear at Lullworth on on breakfast television. They really were heroic. And they kept up this constant barrage of all they wanted to know is tell us more, tell us the truth, what really happened. Of course, Portland were a little bit hamstrung because a lot of their documentation for this was still classified 40 years later, 30, 40 years later. So they were trying to get it declassified as, as fast as they could, but there was nothing in there that the Soviet Union wouldn't have been aware of, but they were a bit worried about what might be in there so they were taking their time with it in the end the local authorities a combination of the local authorities the with families and other residents like myself put enough pressure on port and down that the government ordered that an independent uh, review should be made of what happened not the public inquiry um but an independent review and that's how they looked around and they went to the royal society and they came up with um uh, a very decent man called uh, Professor Brian Spratt, and he conducted the the independent review of of the trials down here. So,
0: all of a sudden, you have this broader move for information because people are unsure and they don't know. So these things they gather ahead of steam. Yes. And so the the decent thing and the press release valve here was a was some form of government review to to kind of get things out in the in the open.
2: Yeah. The main thing from the point of view from the Dorset residents is that we wanted to know were the Lyme Bay trials harmful? What was sprayed? Were there any visible health effects that were recognised by local authorities or government? Okay, so in 1999, Brian Spratt, he was asked by the, the government to conduct a review of many live bacterial releases you could remember that he was totally reliant on portendown and the ministry of defense supplying him with the relevant documentation now professor spratt was very inclusive he not only looked at the documents he agreed to come down to weymouth and he, he talked to anybody that wanted to talk to him and anyone that had a grievance so the low families came down and, and talked to him as did i i was I was with the lot families, and he was very receptive because we'd gone through the two field trial reports, the main ones that we had at the time, sort of like a fine tooth comb, and we were finding terrible anomalies in there.
0: So, Mike, uh,
2: if I remember correctly from the documentaries I watched on
0: this, there were three key kind of issues which become talking points in relation to, to this report, I think the first one related to whether they actually knew which agent had been used. Is is that right? i was hoping you could go into a bit more detail about that.
2: When the story first broke, the first thing that Porton Down did when they realised that uh, there were going to be questions asked about the Lyme Bay trials is that they decided to send one of the two bacteria that they sprayed, two types of bacteria, to the Public Health Laboratory Service. It, Colindale collindale uh to examine it for virulence so that they they could find out they could say for definite that this was either virulent and we're very sorry or it wasn't virulent so they decided to send it up to collindale now let me just explain what the, what the main bacteria, the vegetative bacteria was and that was e coli mre162 the mre162 is virtually meaningless it's just porton's own uh identification system that they used. It was isolated from a toilet bowl after uh, a member of Porton Down had evacuated their bowels in 1947 and it was used as a test organism quite continually within the laboratory. It had never been released to the public. So Collindale received the sample and they gave out what its serotype was. They tested it for virulence and they found it, they subjected it to six tests and Although the test was slightly vague, they concluded that it probably didn't cause harm. Examination of the field trial report number three reveals that the serotype that Collindale was given was a different serotype to the one that was sprayed. Now, Poulton were asked about this, and they said, well, how come the serotypes are different? And they tried to say that, ah, well, in the intervening period, serotypes have been restructured, and and that, that's obviously what it was, and, you know, everything's fine. Unfortunately for them, Professor Spratt had sort of different ideas. Um, he acknowledged it in his report, he says that there was uh, a dispute about the serotype of the E. coli strain, and he comes to three conclusions, basically. There are three three possible explanations for this anomaly. First, Porton were guilty of a typo, a typographical error, um, which was perpetuated in later reports. Secondly, uh, MRE didn't carry out the correct serotyping originally. And thirdly, the wrong strain was sent to Collindale for testing. In any of those cases, what Professor Spratt is hinting at is that it implies incompetence. Any of those implies incompetence of and down. But more importantly, if it was that they sent the wrong sample, then with Professor Spratt's report, is next to useless. Because he's relying on the Public Health Laboratory Services report that they couldn't find, detect any signs of virulence in the subject that they tested. But the subject that they tested might not have been the one that was sprayed in Lyme Bay. And the second issue was that
0: some of the bacteria suspensions that they they brewed up and, and used were contaminated. Is that right?
2: Um, there were two trials, number eleven and twelve, that Port and Down used knowingly used contaminated bacteria. The bacterial substance uh, s- suspension was still sprayed even though that they knew it was contaminated with an unknown bacteria they didn't know what this other bacteria was but they knew it was contaminated and it might not have been one bacteria type of bacteria might have been multiple sources of bacteria um professor spratt in his report it is however surprising that suspensions with this level of contamination with uncharacterized bacteria was sprayed across populated areas there is a risk that the contaminating bacteria have a significant ability to cause disease in humans. Now, you've got to remember that all of this bacteria was tested on mice beforehand, but the mice tests, um, Professor Spratt himself didn't really regard that as a proper test to to discover whether anything would be toxic to humans. They, They were spraying material purposely designed to penetrate the deepest part of the lungs. Yet neither report really brings up the fact that that this was happening to the old, the young, the vulnerable. Cystic fibrosis. If you had cystic fibrosis and you came across one of these clouds, you were in deep trouble. I mean, Porton Down admitted to the Lowrith families that BG in an aerosolized form would cause harm to immunocompromised people they just number crunched and said the number of immunocompromised people in those days wouldn't have been as high as today.
0: And the final issue might uh, related to the so-called DICE trials, and these were trials which weren't uh, actually included in the scope of Professor Spratt's review because he didn't know about them. And I've actually got uh, a clip here of of him being told uh, about these trials as part of a documentary, something I understand you were involved in. Recently ITV West obtained previously classified documents from the Public Records Office. These detailed six secret trials carried out in 1968. Although this time was covered by Professor Spratt's report he says he had no knowledge of them
2: before we showed him the documents. Was he, like the public, being kept in the dark?
1: I'm surprised to hear that because I did try and get hold of all the documents. And I think if the MOD is going to go to all the trouble of having an independent report, they, they should show me all the documents. I think just to try and sort of hide them and and, and not even tell me of their existence, I, I think is, is 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 not a very sensible way to behave.
0: So after the Lyme Bay trials came to light and there was a public inquiry into them, information on the zinc cadmium trials, which we discussed last week, which occurred earlier in the Lime Bay trials, came to public attention. So I guess for a sense of completion, I wondered if you could also talk to me a little bit about that report
2: and the key findings and limitations of it. So yet again, the, the, the great wheel turned and the government decided that they'd look for another professor to investigate, to do an independent review. Unfortunately for them, they couldn't find anyone that would touch it with a barge pole. And it went on for about eight months, this search. They just could not find people and they don't want to be associated with it. But fortunately for the MOD, along came uh, Professor Peter Lackman. He was presented with a terms of reference, which was very restrictive. Terms of reference were basically to examine the previous report that had been done into the trials in America by the National Academy of Sciences to review the documents he was given by Portendown down about the trials that were done in the UK and to do a comparison and to produce something for the lay reader which would highlight any concerns. Academy of Sciences in America placed a caveat on their conclusions that zinc cadmium sulfide was probably harmless, and the amount that was inhaled was probably harmless, because they said that there was no information to be had, and they recommended that the United States Armed Forces investigate this, do extensive research into the dangers of inhaling zinc cadmium sulfide particles and report back to them in which case their report would be changed. He didn't mention that he decided, no, I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to take the National Academy of Sciences as written stone. And I'm going to, all I'm going to do is compare the amounts of zinc, cadmium sulfide that was breathed in by people in this country compared to America. Now that's got two major, major faults in it. One, Portendown themselves admit that the sampling devices that were used to collect the numbers of inhaled particles could not be used for dosage estimation. They they must not be used for dosage estimation. They should only be used for air trajectory studies. But he didn't see that document because Portendown didn't give it to him. And he missed, he missed an enormous thing. He bases, you know, everything's based on dosage but he missed a port and down document that said that the chief sampling unit in there could be wrong by a factor of a hundred. So any dosage that he saw should have been multiplied by a hundred, but he didn't, didn't do that. And this is a common phase that occurred. He was not given quite a few documents. He didn't inquire to ask for more. They, they were there. All he had to do is just do a quick search of the National Archives and he would have seen the documents. He could have asked for them. But all he did is that he went to Porton down. They shoved a load of documents on the table. He picked them up, gave them to the team. They read them very, very quickly. The whole thing was over and done with in about three or four weeks. Then it took a while for the paper to be produced. But the investigation was very quick indeed. So what's really interesting is these reports, of course, they served
0: a, an immediate practical and function. But they also had, do you think, what, what do you think the long-term significance or consequence of this process was? I mean, how do you think this issue has been left to lay? Is there still ambiguities ambiguities remaining for you? Oh, and yes, are tremendous,
2: they? tremendous. Um, the, the problem that you've got the reports is that they were designed to fulfil a function that, um, I'd say, a political function so that if the question comes up again that uh, any politician or including anyone from dstl Portland down they can say well this was looked into by professor spratt here's his conclusions end of um never mind the fact that both reports actually had glaring holes professor spratt never gave any references in in any of his work it was never peer reviewed. it was a good report but um it lacked more depth and he, and certain documents were hidden from him. He wasn't told about the 1975 DICE trials. Professor Lackman was similar. His We caused a bit of a fuss to get his peer reviewed because we couldn't believe how many documents he was not permitted to see. He was never permitted to see the really dangerous trials. And the dangerous trials were the ones that were conducted at low level by Land Rover, which meant that people were inhaling... Um, zinc cadmium sulphide clouds uh, within two metres of a source as the van drove past. Um, Extremely dangerous stuff. So both of these reports actually raise more questions than they settle.
0: Has occurred to me, reading around this and the earlier trials you've just been talking about, was we know about the ones in the UK. We know about the trials, some of the trials in the US as well. So the zinc cadmium sulphide, there was also public uh, inquiries into those trials many years later, and public concern about them, which mirrored in some respects what happened in in the u k it strikes me that various other states around the world where comparable trials probably happened,
2: most states hide their biological warfare work behind the term defensive and of course, to be able to work out how to defend yourself against biological warfare, you have to work out. Can it be conducted in the first place? So you have to conduct trials to find out whether biological warfare on a large scale, like the large area coverage concept, can be carried out. So I imagine so. I mean, I have seen vague references of Porton working with the Netherlands on a, on a similar subject, France for definite. So that
0: that's obviously interesting to me. And so it's probably something where there may already be work out there done by uh, open government campaigns and similar in different national contexts, but yes. maybe those those dots haven't been connected yet. Yes. Uh, in this area, this is definitely one of those areas where you'd be looking at meteorological-type work in particular, which seems to be the... Oh,
2: that that was the main cover, <laughs> meteorological <laughs> yeah. work, air pollution work. Anything that mentions air pollution or, or uh, meteorological long-distance travel.
0: So I must be honest, Mike, something I've found really difficult while putting together uh, this show is the issue of trying not to jump to kind of ethical positions on the, on this issue, and of course, you know, I'm not qualified to to make judgments on safety and those sorts of things. But I mean, one thing that I think has become clear in this show is the fact that you know ethical standards do seem to change over time and, and do seem to vary uh, between time and place. I mean, from my perspective, as a kind of you know wishy-washy internationalist, I I would be interested in thinking about the extent to which you know there is a need for kind of an international discussion about about these histories and then how best to bring this information to, to public attention so that we can learn from it and in particular learn you know the the unfortunate risks that states do take on if they pursue such you know directions in research. I wonder then what the kind of role of a responsible. academy and civil society is in this
2: space? That's a very interesting question. The the most common excuse given by, uh, it's still in use nowadays, by politicians no matter what the subject They say that those were the conditions at the time. No, those were the accepted conditions at the time. But at the time there were many people protesting, Mm. saying that this is totally unethical what you're doing. But Those voices didn't have enough power at the time. If those voices weren't there, then we would never have changed and we would still be operating under the same ethics.
1: Whilst these trials were designed for specific research purposes, they demonstrated in a striking way the feasibility of small-scale biological warfare. An appreciable dose of viable bacteria was achieved over an area greater than 1,000 square miles by the release of only 120 gallons of suspension.
0: So thank you very much for that Mike. This of course could only be a partial perspective on what is a very large and contested topic spanning several decades and to be frank with you I'm still learning um, how best to grapple with these issues. However, one thing which you can be sure of is that you can expect me to be returning to the history of this issue, especially in states where acknowledgement of such work and releases of information are less forthcoming, armed as I am with a seeming absence of proper hobbies. I hope then you very much enjoyed the show and I will see you next time when we return to our antisocial history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare the poisons and pestilence podcast